I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of Business Science Magazine podcast. I'm here today with Howard Lees, uh, and I'd like to do a quick introduction of, of Howard. So Howard is the UK's leading practitioner of behavior management techniques. His track record and expertise on behavioral techniques is widely recognized. He is the author of 14 books, uh, some of which are The Too Busy Trap, which I have here uh, with me. Some of the other books are Ideas for Wimps, Behavioral Scorecards, uh, Behavioral Coaching, Behavioral Safety for Leaders, The Steps Before Step One, and Power Coaching. He is an entertaining and experienced public speaker delivering presentations at conferences and events around the world. Howard Lees founded Holland Limited in 2004 after four decades in civil engineering and project management. Uh, laterally is an executive for the Betchel Corporation, where he was responsible for major projects in Europe and had an impressive record for delivering and implementing major cultural changes. He is a chartered civil, uh, chartered civil engineer and fellow of the Institute of Civil Engineers. He, del he delivers executive coaching, training courses, and workshops aimed at getting behavioral science to the world. How are you doing, Howard? I'm very good, thank you, Adam. <laughs> so I think I said behavioral science at least six times during uh, my introduction of you. So I think that's a great place to get started. How did you fall into, and I feel like most people fall into behavior science as opposed to setting out when they're a kid to do it. You know, when you're a kid, you don't have a list of, I want to be a firefighter, an astronaut, and a behavioral scientist. So how did you fall into behavior science? Okay, I, I was, at the time I was working for Bechtel, big American corporation, big contractor. At the time, probably the biggest contractor in the world. And uh, working in the London office. And uh, the CEO of Bechtel had, um, was recommended uh, by the CEO of Chevron, I think, um, uh, that rolling out behavioral science would be a good idea for the, for the organization because the organization was transitioning from uh, command and control into something more enlightened. He knew they needed to get more enlightened because too many things were going wrong. And uh, they put a lot of that down to the fact that command and control was old hat. It, w it wasn't working anymore. Um, so they, they rolled out a behavioral course for a very select group of people. And uh, I was in London, I put my name down for that in 99 and uh, joined um, a course in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, which was a, like a 12 month course with time in the classroom and then time out. Um, and so uh, the moment I saw it, uh, I thought that looks right. That's, you know, it was the right time for me to do that. Um, but the moment when I arrived at the first classroom with, with Professor Bill Redman, I'm now 10 minutes in and I knew it absolutely was the right thing. Uh, because it, it's the, it's the, it's the holy grail in terms of how do you get a bunch of people in an organization to want to do the right thing? How do you get a bunch of people in an organization to enjoy work? Um, how do you get them to be creative? How do you get them to deliver feedback? It all comes down to understanding of behavioral science and an understanding that if you're the boss of an organization and everybody wants to do the right thing, then you've got a pretty good organization. Absolutely. You know, you were talking about that and Bill Redman is a, a legend in organizational behavior management. I'm glad you brought him up, but um, you, you talked about this happening in 1999 and I've noticed that there's been a shift in the use of the term behavior in all sorts of different industries of business over the course of the past six or seven years that it's become more accepted. I feel like in the late 90s even, or in the early 90s, that behavior was a bad word. It wasn't used in business. Have you seen uh, more organizations opening up to just the term behavior and behavior science in general? Um, I, I, think, I think it's still a misused word. Uh, we, we coach organizations um, who are bidding for major projects and who are going for what's called a behavioral assessment. But when they get there, these things are rarely actual behavior assessments. They don't even define behavior. Um, so that, that there's a, it's a misused word. It's a shame, but it's a much misused 
um, um, word. Um, and, I, and I think even in behavior-based safety, um, Scott Geller himself changed it to people-based safety because people were misusing the word behavior. Um, so I, and, and he insists that things get defined first, and he's absolutely right. So I think where it's defined, um, um, it's, it's, it's spreading, and the good guys that have got it right now are doing very well. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say it was, I wouldn't say it was as big as it could be. I think the difficulty with behavioral science is that people have to learn it. And uh, the people who are advising organizations are mostly management consultants who have to do something snappy and memorable. And, you know, they have to roll out to a lot of, you know, to a lot of people. So they do something that's entertaining for half a day. And um, they may well deliver some awareness, but awareness doesn't change behavior. You have to learn this. You have to learn the, the, the basics of the science. And that's, it's, that's the kind of difficult side of teaching behavioral science is that people have to work. You know, we do like a six, mod, six half day module courses and the first two or three are show business. You know, we, we entertain them and they love it. And then they get to module four when they have to do something and all of a sudden, you know, that kind of first order consequence of, whoa, what do you mean I have to observe some behaviors? What do you mean kind of thing? So it, it, behavioral science still struggles from the fact that it's necessary for people to read books and it's necessary for people to practice so they can get good at it. And I, and I think against kind of mainstream management consulting, we're never going to be, we're, we're never going to be as popular as they are. Um, so we're relying on the good guys to recognize that this is worth learning. And there's plenty of those. Absolutely. You know, something that I noticed in um, some of your books that I read was at the beginning of the book, you always seem to go over fundamental concepts in behavior analysis. So in the too busy trap, for example, you cover antecedents, behaviors, and consequences before yeah. you really dive into the meat of the book. So do you feel like behavior science training is an, is a prerequisite to consulting work? Um, the, the reason why I do that, um, and is that, is that I think it's good just to kind of map out the basics because without learning behavioral science, people can understand pinpointing, you know, do you have an accurate active description of what's going on? that other people would agree with and you know something you could count so so people can accept that consequence and actually use it in the workplace without having a fundamental understanding of negative reinforcement which is one of the main things that people have to learn if they're going to learn behavioral science but also a really difficult thing for people to get their head around to for people to be able to recognize the various uh, various consequences in day-to-day -day kind of workplace scenarios. That takes some practice because they have to stay awake and be observing the impact of what, you know, person A said to person B and how person B responded and then what person B said back to person A. These kind of watching kind of, um, watching uh, responses develop over time and watching relationships either improve or get worse is, is, uh, is a, it's a good trait to learn, but it requires an awful lot of observation and awareness um, to do it. And, and people need to be able to do that in order to be able to deliver feedback because what organizations are starved of is feedback. Absolutely. And something that I've noticed in my consulting work is, and I'm not sure if you've seen this as well, is people with regards to behavioral observation, people tend to be more aware of negative events than they are of positive ones. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the negative ones there, they jump on really quickly, but when somebody does something that they like and they should be positively reinforcing, they tend to miss those. Have you noticed that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So if somebody is going to become um, a more uh, enlightened leader, the very thing that they have to start doing more is, is finding good things that they want to continue and reinforcing them well and, and praise or recognizing them because they can't reinforce. But, you know, if they praise and recognize the good things that they see, then the likelihood is that those things will repeat. And in a hierarchy, uh, an awful lot of bosses 
have a low kind of understanding of of the, of the downstream impact of their own behaviour, and uh, also have a low understanding of just how bet- how much better it could be if they did praise sincerely praise you know stuff that they saw that was uh, that was right. But there's still a you know if people leave things up to nature, there's still a temptation you know to just pick out the things that are red and not the things that are green. You know, they go down a report and say, why is that red? They don't go down it and say, hey, why are all these things green? Absolutely. But, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So, so in coaching, um, getting people to uh, have a better balance of what's going on in their organization is good. Because in truth, that's the only way that, that uh, trust is going to increase and the right kind of feedback they need to know needs to emerge. People in businesses make decisions on, not on not enough of the right uh, uh, feedback. How, so we, you mentioned uh, leadership there a couple of times. So I'd like to talk about that from a behavior analytic perspective. So you talked about the leaders changing their own behavior first, and I I feel like that's uh, that's in line with my experience with consulting. Is that leadership is first a self-management task. So you have to change your own behavior before you can endeavor to change someone else's behavior. Do you find uh, that to be the case? Yes. There's a, there's a great book written by Marshall Goldsmith called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And, um, and it, it's true. So in, in business, by, by being energetic and active and using lots of presenteeism and you know, being the first there and the last home and doing great work and great jobs, you can get recognized and promoted and then people get promoted into a leadership job where they're not supposed to do anything success now means other people success through others and a lot of people struggle at that transition of going up to say a vp's job and then still being first there you know still being the first person to talk still being the you know they a lot of people find it difficult to change when they get to that place where now they have to be the savant. So they have to be the wise person who sits there and doesn't pass on their opinion that lets everybody else speak and, you know, focuses on bringing out the best in the other people. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, I feel like that's a perfect example of uh, the Peter principle. Um, and there's a, a great book uh, called the leadership pipeline where, um, yeah. you know, it talks about people getting promoted to their, level of incompetence with uh, the Peter principle where they'll, like you said, they're so used to maybe doing the task themselves that when they get promoted, as opposed to giving feedback and coaching and some other skills, they'll focus on doing the task themselves. Yes. Yeah, I think that, that's a great book. And uh, that's, that's one of the books that um, I get people to read uh, um, when I'm coaching, because there are some very good early on, the, some of the very good uh, chapters um, about micromanagement, about the highest paid person's opinion in the room. You know, there's some really good stuff um, um, in that book. Just, just in the last week, I've been coaching four people, and two of them uh, used to be in the military. So, and uh, one thing that I find about leaders who've previously been in, in the military is that the people that come out of the military have a very good understanding of leadership and put leadership front and center. So when I'm coaching people who've been in the, uh, in the military, they normally have a very good understanding of the importance of leadership. Um, and other people that get um, promoted, get promoted on their skills as an engineer or a lawyer or, or whatever they are, and their skills, you know, their knowledge of spreadsheets and accounting and, you know, profit and loss and stuff like that. And uh, those people are less likely to put leadership front and center. So that, I mean, I, I'm not saying all leaders need to do military service. I'm definitely not saying that. But I have noticed that they um, that the within the within the military, people get promoted on their leadership ability. And uh, I don't know many people in business who you know got the job because they're the ones that operate really good one to ones and really good coaching sessions with their people. They get the job because they delivered some amazing projects somewhere and made the company a you know a bunch of money. So it, it's, it's like different kind of uh, different reasons for people to get promoted. And interestingly, I find that 
the the people that have been in the military are the least hierarchical. Um, really? Why do you why do you? I was just gonna. I was just about to ask. Uh, why do you think that uh, people that come out of the military have the best leadership skills? Is it because they do a great job of training and reinforcing those skills, or like you said, promoting people that are, that are the best leaders? What do you think makes that difference? Yeah, it's because they focus on on leadership. I mean, I worked for uh, General American General Jack Sheehan for two years, and that was the beginning of my education. I mean, unfortunately, I was in my fifties by then, but um, I actually got educated on leadership working directly for him for two years, um, and and he'd worked for his boss in in the Marines was General Colin Powell. Oh, wow. And uh, my view of the military before that was was completely wrong. I, I had a very skewed idea of what it would be like to work within a, a, a somebody who'd come out of a hierarchy. But those guys go out of their way, amazingly out of their way, in order to get feedback from the troops um, to find. Yeah. So where are we now? You know, he would he would always say that. You know where are we now? And I'd give him an opinion and then he'd say, okay, what do you think we should do next? It was, you know, it was all, you know, that, uh, that adage, I asked him a question and he would say, what do you think I'm thinking now? Um, <laughs> that's great leadership and uh, not enough people in business get to work for somebody who's like hundred percent leader all the time. How do you, so how do you define so I feel like this is such an ac academic question, but how do you define leadership from a behavioral perspective and how would you recommend measuring it? Okay, so I think, I think that um, what, those, what those guys do is go to inordinate lengths to make sure that feedback is, is moving freely up the organization. And they'll do that by um, not by micromanaging at all, but they'll do that by going around the organization and chatting to people and asking them questions and saying, our mission in this organization is to, you know, whatever it is they're doing. How does what you're doing today fit with that? And when people chat with them, they'll always say, that's great. Thank you very much and move on. So they would never, never give an opinion, never give advice, uh, always ask very open questions and always be very and always be very pleasant. And um, the effect of that is, is extraordinary compared to leaders that never do that, that aren't seen in the, in the, uh, in the workplace. And the other thing to, for being a direct report to a, to a good leader is that one shouldn't expect to be told to do anything. A good leader will not give orders. A good leader might ask questions, uh, but a good leader will also kind of be there for you. So how do you measure that? Uh, you can get people's opinions um, for sure, and and people and people will offer up honest opinions if they don't feel under threat. Um, so we we use uh, these anonymous voting buttons in in meetings, and and uh, we put a question up on a on a PowerPoint slide, and let people um, answer the questions. And then use the answers to the questions to kind of narrow the focus and then ask a more detailed question. And um, that's, that's all in the, in the quest to ensure that the, the right amount of feedback is going through the organization. I just read that. I just read the book by Ray Delio um, the guy, he's a guy, um, a finance guy. And uh, the, the, the lengths they go to, to get feedback in their organization is, is, people would say is extraordinary, almost a complete, you know, 360 feedback survey every week to everybody in the organization, really? you know? So, and, and he puts the, the, uh, the strength or the reason why they do that is because as he says, their information is much more accurate than most organizations information. Therefore their decisions are based on, much more based on fact or correct opinions than anybody else's. You've mentioned, so yeah. Cool. Well, I was just going to say you've mentioned feedback so many times. Do you feel like that's one of the biggest deficiencies that you run into uh, when yes. coaching people out there? Is uh, a poor feedback culture or one of those workplace cultures where they have just annual performance reviews and and the uh, uh, direct 
or the frontline workers don't see their managers for the entire month, something like that? Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that can be common. There are some good companies that have, that have good feedback. But um, if, somebody, if I say to somebody, have you got any, you know, have you got any um, survey information from your people? And they say, yes. I'll always say, Is it, was it an online survey? And they usually are. And then I'll say, so do people, are people honest on online surveys? And people will go, well, yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, it's like you've asked a question they haven't thought of. Uh, but then when you say to them, well, do you feel that you could be identified on an online survey? You know, uh, probably. Okay. So would that affect what you would say in a survey? Well, it might do. You, you know, you get a, you get a little bit of resistance back, but um, there's a there's a bunch of research out there. I don't know whose research it was, but somebody said that you if you go from a, an online general survey where people think they can be identified to an utterly anonymous one where people are convinced they can't be, you get a massive shift to the left. You get a massive shift in so people will volunteer what they think the company wants to say in an online survey as opposed to um, I've got an example. We, I was at, a, I was at, it was actually, I was at an airport uh, with a bunch of knowledge workers at, at the airport, and they they had a safety survey. And the safety survey said, "We don't walk by if we see something, you know, that we think is dangerous or risky. We don't walk by." And uh, I said, "Well, that's that's very commendable." And then we ran a, an anonymous survey that said. Well, pretty much we bought, we walk by lots of stuff all the time. You know, there was lots of rationalizations. We're very busy. I don't see things. Do you know what I mean? But there people in organizations get tuned to say the right thing in a survey because probably because the organization hasn't persuaded them that no, 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 we want the truth. So leaders, the leaders that are going a long way out of their way to get the truth are the ones likely running the very good organizations. I would imagine that would be an example of reactivity uh, for the, um, the respondents' behavior. So if they feel like they're being observed or yeah. somebody's going to know what they're going to say, it's going to impact their behavior, right? Yeah. And I've had leaders that said, yeah, but I want to know who said what because I want to know who they are. And yeah. I keep yeah. saying, well, you can't. You can either have the truth or, you know, not have the truth and know who said what. But, you know. I'm advising you that, that you would be better off with the truth and not knowing who said what. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you feel like there's been a, um, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. Do you feel like there's been a shift in how people in upper management and CEOs are running companies now versus let's say at the turn of the century? Um, I know that's a loaded question. Well, some companies for sure. I mean, uh, um, Bechtel was a very enlightened organization. They rolled out the behavioral science program in 1997, and it was a 20-year program. So the CEO wasn't that old particularly, but he knew that even he would be gone by the end of the program. So, um, so it, it, I like to see companies that are going for change and give themselves enough time because the world's full of companies that want to change their culture and only give themselves 18 months, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but I've seen some excellent, excellent um, um, leadership in some great companies and some from people who are all curious and want to learn and have learned behavioral science and are using it. But also some people who haven't learned behavioral science, but, had a very good understanding of how to bring the best out in people anyway. So um, uh, those, you know, when I've met those people, they're, they're still curious and uh, they'll still, you know, Hey, this sounds interesting. Let me, you know, I'd like to know some more about this. My, my old boss, uh, Jack Sheen used to say, you always have to be curious, you know, and uh, if I speak to him now, he would say, you know, are you still curious, Howard? You know, so the, I think it's good for leaders to be interested in learning new things. And those are what I would call the enlightened guys. And um, I think there's a, maybe the last five years I've seen some nice kind of gender balances, certainly. So there are companies like Black & Veatch, whose CEO is now a woman. Uh, there, are, there are organizations, number of organizations who have a better gender balance within the board of directors. 
because in in the in the kind of 1990s you could open up any company and the board would be you know the the senior vice presidents would be all old white men you know so as part of that enlightenment in terms of gender balance and in terms of uh, and in terms of a cultural balance i think there's also a better balance in terms of a move away general move away from command and control into more enlightened things and I, and i mean you see examples every day where accountants screw things up but the there's a it's slow it's not fast enough you know it's like it's like climate change the, the recognition that it's going to kill us the recognition isn't happening fast enough so and the recognition that there are smarter ways of bringing out the best in people that's not happening fast enough either um but in in my world it's happening you know it's happening pretty fast because we're dealing with what i would call the good guys but i don't know what percentage of good guys there are <laughs> sure and, well, and i i wanted to touch on something else you said there too or you've mentioned a few times is um asking questions and being curious and i feel like that's a that's a such a fundamental skill of any scientist. And part of the reason I was asking about if things have changed from the turn of the century, let's say about 20 years ago to now, is because I see a lot of companies implementing popular interventions. So let's have a wellness program or yeah. let's let our workers work remotely as opposed to asking questions and testing things out, seeing what works. Have you seen that type of trend as well? Um, I've seen, uh, I mean, there are certainly organizations here that uh, are dealing with, well, some are, some are dealing with stress by putting fruit on the, you know, giving people fruit and free memberships to gyms. Right, that's what I mean. Instead of, um, you know, going to them and saying, what will help? Here, let me just, here's a quick fix, you know? Yeah, yeah. but whilst at the same time, though, operating a, a timesheet regime, which forces people to charge 80% of their time to projects exactly. when you know when hey last week I, I didn't work on projects i was working on a bid you know and then they're still kind of pressured into finding ways of charging their time to clients that they might necessarily you know might not have been working for so in terms of stress i think stress is emerging in from a from a, a knowledge worker um, perspective you know so like safety safety in a construction company i would say there are that most of them, well, certainly in the UK, are pretty safe now. So safety is very good now in construction companies for manual workers. But I think for knowledge workers, in terms of stress, I think there's more stress around now. Because we're, we're also being algorithmed. We're also being, you know, organizations have data on their people and are using that data to kind of squeeze them. You know, you can just see it happening. They know when they came in the building, they know when they left, they know when they went on the computer, they know when they were using their phone. So they, they I think there's a, there's a risk of a misuse of, of, uh, of data. You and, just uh, took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to ask, do you feel like when we, and we're going to use algorithm as a verb here, but when these companies are algorithming, um, uh, their their employees' behavior. Do you feel like there's a risk to, I guess, health and safety? Is there a risk to production? Is there is there a general risk to the company by doing that? Well, I think there's most definitely a risk in, in an increase in stress, because what stress does is close down creativity. What stress does is close down any discretionary effort. So if somebody is, uh, if somebody, I mean, it, it's, it's, I don't think I've got a knowledge worker example. I've got a number of manual worker examples. So if somebody's in charge of, uh, of uh, fixing the brakes on a truck, uh, they would be given the truck and somebody would say, hey, fix the brakes, you know, whereas these days the, uh, the truck arrives and they're given 70 minutes to fix the brakes. Well, so you just gave an example of a manual worker and you couldn't think of an example of a knowledge worker. Do you feel like that's a deficit in our science that we haven't done enough research on how to help stress with knowledge workers? Yes, that's the dearth at the moment. That's the, that's the big gap. Um, you can ask people whether they feel as if they've been you know, put under stress unnecessarily in, the work, in, a, in a climate survey, you can ask them that, and uh, you will get a number of people saying yes. I mean, if you go to, 
we could go to an organization and ask, I've witnessed bullying in the last two weeks. And, you know, frequently we'll get 20, maybe 30% of the people saying yes. So that's not great because as bullying in the workplace, that means there isn't much discretionary effort. The, 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 the kind of the, I guess the, the big benefit that knowledge workers have over manual workers is that I guess a manual worker, you know, the fastest person to change the brakes and the slowest person won't be that different. Whereas a knowledge worker um, can deliver phenomenal work if they're using their brain. But if they don't, if they feel intimidated or, you know, they can deliver almost no work. So they, the gap between what, what a knowledge worker could give could be three, four, five times uh, the amount of a knowledge worker that's feeling oppressed. Absolutely. And, well, and I, I think that there's a big shift now anyway with automation from manual work, obviously, to more knowledge work. Uh, and I think that, and I don't know how prevalent it is in the UK, but I know here in the US, um, we're really moving over to more of a service-based economy, and that's including yeah. a lot of knowledge work. Yeah. Um, so it, you mentioned something else too, or you mentioned it a couple of times, and, and a few of my guests over the course of the past few weeks have brought it up, and I haven't uh, done my job as the interviewer and asked for a definition of it. So definition of discretionary effort. We've used that term a few times already. It's so important um, in leadership and companies in general. So how would you define discretionary effort? Okay, so examples of discretionary effort, the guy fixing the brakes notices a hydraulic line leaking and fixes that while he's there. So the, the, the office worker's walking out of the building at five o'clock and hears a phone ring and goes back and answers it. <laughs> <laughs> going, right, so going above and beyond, doing more than what's expected of you. Yeah, well, I, I feel like I'm quoting Aubrey Daniels' book here directly, right? <laughs> yeah, but 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 I think that I think that the difference though is wanting to do more because they enjoy their work, and I think the difference is also if you have space. I mean, this is the this is the antidote to the people who are compressing people by saying you've only got sixty minutes to do this or twenty minutes or whatever. The opposite of that is giving people space because. Uh, knowledge workers with space can be creative. Knowledge workers who are allowed to fail can be creative. So knowledge workers who have a code to kind of go and explore three or four different ways of doing this and see which one works best and then we'll choose that and go forward with that one. Oh, knowledge workers who are allowed to experiment with, with different things um, are much likely to do better work if they feel as if they're not being controlled. You know, Scott Geller calls you know calls that you know do you have the freedom uh, um to do your work it's as simple as that have i got the freedom to be creative so do i have the freedom to give my discretion to be able to enjoy going hey you know i noticed that and i've seen that i'm putting these together and now i've made this you know um if if people are allowed to do that and know that when they achieve it somebody's going to go wow that's fantastic well done you know get some appreciation for it so uh, if they're working in, a, in, an, in an environment where there's a low likely of somebody shouting at them, then the chances are that the discretionary effort will be high. And, I, and I, I'm not sure it's going ab above the call of duty. I think it's, I think it's just being allowed to uh, express. If you're allowed to express yourself, either being honest to somebody, that's discretionary effort, being honest to somebody, but also in, in achieving some goal or, or finding a way of delivering a project quicker. Um, then those are the examples of discretionary effort that Aubrey talks about. And those are the things that make your company five times better than the next company. So if you can get a hundred people delivering discretionary effort, then you're phenomenally, but you're not a bit better than the other company. You're a lot better than the other company. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting you brought up Scott Geller. He had a great phrase and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it here, but he said something to the effect of um, the importance around discretionary effort and leadership is not just avoiding failure, but seeking out success. Yeah. And I, I wanted to touch on something. You, you used a few phrases there where you said people will excel when they don't feel like they're being controlled. Now you and I know that whether you use positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement or punishment, it's all some sort of form of control. But yeah. does this 
stress the point for discretionary effort of the use of positive reinforcement over other strategies? Yes. They, they, I think the, um, <clears throat> an understanding of how to, of how to recognize um, positive reinforcement amongst leaders is a difficult thing for them to get because you can't, I mean, by definition, you can't deliver positive reinforcement because it's a consequence received by a performer. So <laughs> you have to deliver praise, you have to deliver recognition and hope that that turns into positive reinforcement for the recipient. Um, and so what that means is that leaders have to be looking for it and have to be going out of their way to look for it. And it, in order to go out of their way for, um, to look for it, they have to make sure they're not too busy or too distracted. Because when they're too busy or distracted, that's when they forget to do these necessary things, yeah? There was an old, you know, there was a, a management consultant eight years ago, this was years ago, who used to stand up and say, you know, I told you I loved you when we got married. If anything changes, I'll get back to you. <laughs> 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 it, it doesn't work you know you have to be vigilant and you have to be kind of you have to be working at it all the time it's like a garden if you want the garden to look nice you have to be working at it all the time and so leaders that i mean that's the reason why i wrote that book that you've got in your hand is that i'm pointing out that if people think they're doing that if leaders think they're doing well by being too busy then they're wrong the great leaders i work for were never too busy never ever too busy I could ring them and they would always get back to me that day. You know, if it wasn't straight away, they would get back that day because they valued the importance of being able to talk to their subordinates when they wanted, you know, when they wanted to talk to them. So, yeah, that's the, but I think the, the understanding of, of how to create an environment where people feel as if there's a high proportion of, of, of positive reinforcement around, that's the desired goal. Um, and, I mean, also, I think the difficulty is getting leaders to understand extinction is an important thing. You know, who haven't you talked to this week? Who haven't you talked to for a month kind of thing? So that's an easier thing for leaders to get their head around than negative reinforcement, which is just, you know, issuing threats either deliberately or, or you know, or inadvertently. Because in a hierarchy, threats get delivered. And, in, and then I'd say a very large percentage of the time, the threats are delivered inadvertently. People don't know, they just put somebody under threat. Absolutely. You know, I'd like to do a quick hard turn here um, before we run out of time. Um, I've read, I think, five of your books so far. And the one that I haven't gotten to uh, that I'd like, uh, I, I guess, uh, a preview of is Ideas. <laughs> so could you, you talk a little bit about uh, what that one's about? I'm, I'm just... That, I'm just super okay. curious about what that's well, about. Well, WIMPs is a, um, it's a, it's a kind of Northern English term for a start. So I probably shouldn't have called it that because it doesn't translate, you know, we, we sell books all over the world and people say, what's a WIMP? Exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit different across the pond over here. <laughs> so, I mean, the, uh, the, the premise of the book and the reason why I wrote it was people would say, hey, why doesn't that leader say something, yeah? So that leader was just put under pressure by somebody else and they didn't say something, you know, why doesn't, why didn't that leader have the courage to do whatever it was? So people put, people putting poor leadership down to a lack of courage. And um, unfortunately that's a, that's a label and it's an unfair label. So I think it's a, if you, if you've observed somebody and you've decided or you've put a label to it that you think that they've, displayed a lack of courage because they didn't stand up for themselves or somebody else or whoever it was um the the book is uh, talks about there are scenarios in the book where you know there are lots of examples but the point is that an environment has to be created for the right things to happen so this is the the important thing is the the leader if the leader thinks that mm, i'm not sure about that guy i'm not sure that that guy's got the you know whatever you want to call it cojones to do to do and say the right thing it's not that person's problem it's the leader's problem for not creating the environment where it's safe to do the right thing because Absolutely. i think most people are most people are courageous if their child was under threat they would do something about it straight away so courage is the wrong word 
these things are situational in organizations and uh, it's a recognition that they if somebody didn't say didn't speak up or didn't say the right thing in that moment of you know there was clearly a moment of uh, or there wasn't a moment of psychological safety if you like somebody's been berated in a meeting and didn't fight back and you think they've got no courage and it's that's wrong that environment was a bad environment and someone needs to do something about that and that's what the i mean pretty much all the books talk about that talk about the simplicity of the of the behaviors pretty much contingent on the on the environment and each environment is situational and there's a primary mover somewhere in there that's dictating whether somebody will do or say the right thing you know i'm glad you brought that up that's one of the things that i find are a little bit more difficult. So when I uh, explain to, when I'm doing consulting work and I explain to uh, a client what behavior is, I feel like they have a pretty good understanding of that. We st start talking about pinpointing. But yeah. when I try to explain the relationship between behavior and the environment and specifically go into the environment and how context is so important, everything is situational, I feel like they struggle more with the environment component than they do with the behavior component. Yes. And that if you want to change somebody's behavior, you're not changing their behavior, you're arranging the environment. Do you, yes. do you run into that as well? Yeah, I agree. Well, well so when I was being trained, um, I did uh, like six weeks in Pittsburgh and then went back to the London office and I had a coach and we went into a board meeting and it was the directors that I used to be a member of. So it was a group of people who I was, I was familiar with. And I went in with my coach and he said, make notes of all the behaviors because they're mostly going to be verbal behaviors but make notes of all of the outstanding ones and i will too and we'll compare notes and it was a two-hour meeting at the end i had like half a page of the behaviors that i'd observe you know what i'm going to say now and he had 13 pages <laughs> and he went through all of these all of the behavioral interactions when fred said this bill said that and and susan frowned and do you know what i mean it was like a whole new world of observing behaviors which were mostly verbal behaviors but it wasn't just the words it was how the words were spoken and how other people responded to them and they were very easily observable things so i've coached people to not just be in meetings but you know observe meetings and make notes and and it, it's it's uh i think it's a very very important thing for leaders to you know to say much less say say a lot less in their own meetings but make notes of you know what did you see when he said that what did she think or when she said that what did you know how did they react because you can see facial expressions i mean you can you have to clarify a lot of stuff you know you might guess wrong but um they're not they're not actually you know the bottom line is people aren't actually observing what's happening in their own meeting absolutely and be you know and it's interesting too because we talked about first step of uh, leadership is self-management but i think uh, the next step or uh, one of the subsequent steps is being uh what, what we refer to sometimes as behavioral detectives listening yes. taking notes yeah. being an observer what's going on asking questions like you were talking about earlier yeah and then and then if they do that and they do it well they can ask a clarifying question they can say did i get that right did, did you just disagree with you know or you know i mean you have to be careful with confrontation in especially high-powered meetings everybody's like you know aware <laughs> um, but i mean it depends how good the leader has got the environment and how open it can be because the best organizations have very robust meetings where people do say you know, they can say pretty kind of um, um, not not blatant things. What's the word? But direct. If people can be direct with each other and honest and it's received well, then you've probably got a nice, robust gang of people who are probably going to be very efficient, effective, productive, you know, um, all those other things. One of the things that I that I picked out of my training with 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 Bill, but also this I noticed in this book by this economist was the was the first order second order third order consequences so the first i mean sim, simply simply speaking first order is um i, I want to lose some weight i want to get healthy i'm going to go to the gym I, i'm not going to drink this glass of wine i'm going to deprive myself of red wine um 
so what he says is you have to get past the 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 kind of first order consequence to get to the I'm more healthy and then the third order consequences I get to spend more time with my grandchildren because I'm going to live longer you know but the second and third are delayed and the first order is the so almost that first level of deprivation if you like right. and uh, we've got a guy actually you will have met him in that Swedish conference Leif Anderson who who's kind of salted everything down to social consequences and natural consequences you know if you leave it up to natural consequences bad things might happen <laughs> and if you focus on social consequences chances are good things might happen so you know broadly speaking so what he would say is if you arrange to meet bill at the gym then you've put social consequences to go and get some exercise so you've you know and if there's no wine in the house then it's it, it makes depriving yourself of wine much easier um, he talked about that. I've talked about that a lot um, since I read it um, in that book. I was taught it 20 years ago, but I, it, it's just, um, I'm, why am I saying this? Because it's something that's been received very well by the people I'm coaching. They get that. They get that. First, what, you know, how am I going to deal with the deprivation of the first order consequence? This guy keeps shouting at me. I haven't responded for, you know, six weeks. I'm going to have to say something now. Uh, the first order consequences, there's a chance of confrontation. Right. I'm going to have to find a way of getting around the, the, you know, the, 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 the limitations of that first barrier in order to get us both to a better place going forward. You know, it's kind of has its roots, I guess, in negotiation and, and, and all kinds of stuff. But uh, the reason why I'm mentioning it is that it's teaching behavior I found is difficult. And that one little kind of thing that one little kernel goes down very well with people they recognize the healthy live longer thing and then they start to be able to apply it to difficult you know things in the uh, uh, in the workplace and i've had some great feedback you know coming back uh, to me going hey that was good you know you know I, yeah and i really like the way you explained a lot of these things that i think you've um simplified a lot of complicated well, maybe leadership isn't that complicated, but you've simplified some of the terms here for leadership as being vigilant, being curious, yeah. asking yeah. questions. And you know, when you, you were talking about asking questions earlier, I was thinking the more questions that you ask and the more probing, but in a positive way questions, not did you do this and how about that? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, that's an interesting idea. You're creating that employee that positive employee engagement culture uh that we struggle to define a bit i think yeah yeah well well i think a diffusing if you feel under threat a diffusing thing to say is that's really interesting let me think about it and get back to you right you're out yeah, yeah. um but also you know that sounds really interesting what what do you think you're going to do next and somebody will say something and then you can say let me know how you get on you know you don't have to put a pin in it you can you can, you know, as a leader, you can kind of let things, let things ride. There's, a, there's, there's one, there's one, the popular thing in the UK right now for, for the last four or five years is collaboration. And the book that I'm writing now is on collaboration. And um, I suppose the definition of collaboration is people working together. So organizations want their people to work together. You know, hey, how can we get our people to work together? Well, are they working together now? No, not really. Okay. Why? <laughs> Why do you think that is? <laughs> because humans naturally collaborate. You could stick any group of 10 people in a room, ask them to go to a flip chart and talk about safety and everybody will collaborate. Yeah, so you're going to see one person ask the other person, hey, how did you do that? What do you yes, think about right, it? Yeah. It's just, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so humans naturally collaborate. And so somebody ringing up and saying, can you do as a course on collaboration? I, I, you know, I kind of laugh because I have to say humans collaborate anyway. You're if, already an expert at it. <laughs> if they're not collaborating, they're not collaborating for a reason. There's something in your environment that's, you know, well, I want my divisions to collaborate. Yeah. Well, okay. I think you've just answered your own question there. You know, you, you've you put know, them in silos and. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting too, because that's one of the most common things that I see in consulting as well is when there's a problem, a lot of upper management say, okay, well, we need better training. Go train them. So yeah. they'll think about the antecedents, go train them and everything will be okay and completely ignore the consequences in the environment. 
Do you, yeah. do you see that as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and they, the last book that I wrote was on, was on strategy. And when I was, when I was um, researching the book, um, the, um, the gurus, you know, the books that I was reading of, uh, of the people were saying that, well, it was something like one in 10, only one in 10 organizations have a strategy and only one in 10 of them actually succeed. So, uh, a strategy that's worked for 12 months for an organization or three years or whatever, and has succeeded and they got to the end is a one in a hundred chance. So that's, that's the, that's the extent to which strategy is a problem because organizations write a wish list um, at the start of the year and then don't see if any, don't see if it's happening. You know, they get to 10 months down the line and say, Hey, how's that strategy of ours? Doing? <laughs> <laughs> so that, I mean, that's the most, the most common thing. Um, but the, the benefit of doing strategy is to review it every two weeks um, and then say to everybody, hey, it's working, or say to everybody, these two things here weren't right. We're going to adjust them and, you know, back to feedback again. So the, be, the behavior, the book is a behavioral kind of take on strategy. But, um, but the message, I guess, is, is if you're asking what's happening, then you're going to find out what's happening to your strategy. You're going to find out what's happening to everything else, to safety. It just kind of generalizes into everything. Be curious. And you can adjust. Yeah. Yeah. So adjusting along the way is how high-performing businesses do stuff. They don't get to the end of the year and go, well, I, well that didn't work. And, you know. <laughs> Let's try something else now. Um, I, you know, I have to ask uh, before we run out of time, um, obviously uh, something uh, very, uh, very salient is all of your books are thin. I feel like yeah. you get right to the point. Your books are very efficient um was that uh, done intentionally yeah uh, it, it it was deliberate um in the in the 80s i think there was uh there was a guy who kept print publishing very thin books there was who moved my cheese and the one yes. minute manager yes. and uh those books were were widely kind of um um widely distributed in organizations it was a very simple message it only took you know 15 minutes to read some of mine take 50 minutes and some take 30 minutes, but the, um, I definitely set out to try and compress it down. I mean, the strategy book was 40,000 words and then it had to be squashed back down to 22,000 or something. I think it is. Uh, but yes, it is deliberate. And of course, you know, um, environment drives behavior. So people to go to people that go to work on a train, read books on a bus, read books in a tube, read, you know, People that drive to work don't read books. <laughs> <laughs> well, they hold on. If they're driving to work, they'll listen to books. Yes, now. they might listen to them. Yeah. Yes, yes. So that that is shifting, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so no, I I deliberately wanted to make them small to encourage people um, to read them, and it, and it's worked, and it, it's been a it's been a boon. Yeah, that we sell a lot of books, um, and we ship a lot of books to a lot of places um, around the world. And that's very nice. I mean, it's the internet. The good side of the internet, I guess, is that it's good for things like that. Uh, I, I don't understand um, why, you know, where people, you know, got the idea to ring up and order a box of books. But I like the idea. And <laughs> you guys are publishing our books uh, in the States now. And I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing that grow as well. Look forward to that. Absolutely. At some point, are we going to get you to do an audio book? Um, I have done one and, um, and it, it didn't, there was no interest. Really? So we did, uh, we've, there's a, there's a downloadable book on the, uh, on our website and it's the least, um, it's the kind of, you know, in terms of sales, it's free. So a free downloadable book, the free downloadable book had no interest at all. Wow. Okay. <laughs> the ones that people pay for are the ones that are going out. Yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, it's it, it's um the books are good for presence but i think the books are also good for um every time we do a workshop the people that are in the workshop get one of our books and it, it it's a you know it's a it's a nice way of spreading things we have a monthly digest that we send out that's only two pages with articles written by you know kind of all well, manny rodriguez wrote an article the other, the other month um so 
it's a way of, of maintaining a presence. I mean, as a business, we don't do any advertising and marketing because we have enough, we've got enough um, business. Um, and I, I, I wanted to say this, I meant to say this at the start, when I, when I was being trained, I was trained by another guy called Professor Bill Hopkins. And he said to us, your job is to get behavior to the world. And um, I, think that's a, I think that's a good mantra. And I got an email from, uh, uh, from Scott Geller 10 days ago and he's still repeating that now so the that's i think that that's the mantra you know you don't have to hire us to help you but everybody needs to be getting behavior to the world because i think that you know ultimately that's the answer have an understanding of, of behavioral inter of behavioral interactions between humans and have an have an understanding as to how to improve things and if we're improving things then the chances are we're going to get on with the rest of the world Absolutely. Uh, that's uh, something uh, for those of us that are uh, certified with the Behavior Analyst Certification Board, one of our ethical compliance code items is dissemination of behavior analysis, where yeah. that's something that's expected of us is to get the word out on behavior analysis. Yeah. But um, so before we run out of time, um, something that we do towards the end of the interviews is always ask um, where we can find you next. So are you doing any uh, public speaking engagements coming up soon. Um, and if you could talk a little bit more about the collaboration book that you're working on. Okay, I, I have some, um, um, I have some engagements in New Zealand. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's the other yeah. side of the planet for you. Yeah. Um, on the 7th of, uh, on the 7th of November, I'm doing a, a safety, um, a safety uh, workshop um, in London. And um, we've got our conferences next May um, that, that we run in, in Manchester. And Manny was at the uh, was here um, at the last um, conference. And this book on this book on collaboration is it's difficult because um, I think I've come to the conclusion that collaboration is impossible. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I'm not serious there. There's a, there's um, there's an urban. The Urban Dictionary's definition of collaboration is it's an unnatural act carried out by non-consenting adults. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it, when you, as an organisation, we get asked to come in and fix things, and uh, so we can, you know, most things that have gone wrong in an organisation with knowledge workers. Most of the things are stereotypical. Most of the problems are stereotypical. There's one, maybe two protagonists causing misery to, <laughs> to others around. And, uh, and uh, so I'm moving the collaboration book around at the moment to see if I can get it to, you know, kind of one, two, three, four, to, to, to get a story that, that makes sense. Because in collaboration, and particularly collaboration, there are lots of reasons why it doesn't happen. And uh, I want to find lots of reasons how it could happen. And, uh, you know, that, that's the difficulty um, at the moment in finishing that book will be uh, coming out with a, with a, you know, a concise and simple story. You know, going back to leadership, the best leadership, the best leaders are the ones that keep things very simple and can say an awful lot in just one sentence. And, uh, and so the, the struggle with the books is not necessarily rattling down copy. I can do that. I can write a lot in a day. It's editing it down to something that's going to make sense to a, to a, a pe people um, of differing kind of frames of reference. Um, and the difficulty is having a story that's, uh, that's informative and interesting and, and things that people can go out and try. So, that, that, you know, you'll see in the books, there's, you could say this, you could say that, you could try this, you could try that. You know, people, if people are willing to experiment, then the book's doing its, you know, it's doing what it should do if people are reading it and going, I'll give that a try and see what happens. That's a very long-winded... No, 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 it's perfect. And to your point, you know, I... Your books were not only easy reads, but like I said earlier, they got to the point very quickly. So yeah. um, I, I thought that there's, and especially for busy professionals um, that need to read The Too Busy Trap, um, I, I, think, uh, I think the size is just right. Uh, and on that note, um, I'd like to say that if people are interested in uh, finding these books, they can go to 
Howard's uh, website, uh, which is holland.co.uk, or they can find them at our publishing company, 305publishing.com. So Howard, I wanted to take a moment and thank you for joining us today. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to chat again